thought things should have been not necessarily better, but I, I thought that it was perfect. You know, everyone knew everybody. You know, you weren't, you would go to your neighbors to, if you needed something and, you know, times were good. And then it just dropped off tremendously. I, I would even say maybe like 2010, everyone just stopped being friendly to each other, stopped like being neighbors. It just felt as though people weren't looking out for each other in the same capacity. DC is way different. I mean, it's, DC has morphed into something else, like hmm. because DC is not, DC used to be, uh, the majority of it used to be black. Chocolate hmm. City. Really? And oh, that's, that's why it's called Chocolate City. There we go. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Never, okay. I did not know that. I really thought it was just like DC had good chocolate. You know, I was ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was wondering. I'm like, where's the chocolate at? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the reason that DC was called Chocolate City is because it was predominantly African American. Right. Um, we had a, we had two, or one more noteworthy than the other, two black mayors, um, and we it was just predominantly African American. So like all our officials. African-American, anybody in uh, in uh, positions of power, African-American, it's like, it was just like, a, it felt differently than it does now. So yeah, mm. it was definitely Chocolate City back in the day. That's back cool. in the day. That's cool, that's cool. Now, Cuzzo, for you, I mean, we kind of grew up in the same time, but I guess we'll give our separate perspectives on it. What was your outlook on the Copag Amityville area coming up through the, uh, the 90s, 2000s? Um, well, I can say, like, I was actually talking about this the other day, just in my neighborhood alone, like, we definitely seen a lot of an influx of Hispanics in the neighborhood. Like, uh, I remember growing up a lot of my, like, my grandparents, uh, my grandma, and like, um, there's older people that I was around, because, you know, my family's been in that neighborhood for there's three generations now so um maybe four but um so the neighborhood um was predominantly and when i say neighborhood i mean like you know the 40s flats sticks you know that area yeah. um was predominantly black and now it's like 50 50 maybe 60 40 in the Spanish side, on, on the Spanish side. And, you know, you can see that process take over um, over time, you know, people are moving out, leaving, going down south, and Spanish people are coming in and taking over and staking their claim in the neighborhood, which is not bad. I, you know, I don't want to put any negative connotation on anything like that. That's just what it was. And um, so I can see that a lot. I know that growing up, that could be outside. Everybody was outside. There was a lot more activity going on outside. And over the years, it just seemed like the kids didn't. I'm seeing them start to get back to it now a little bit, but it seemed like for a while, you didn't see that much. I don't know if the kids were too young and it was just a gap or what the case was, but it seemed like after we left and we started growing up, it seemed like there was a while where it wasn't no kids outside playing basketball, playing football. Cause you know, we was outside every day, whether it was oh, yeah. football, basketball, oh, yeah. whatever the case was, that was the thing. It was like, if they put you, if your parents put you on punishment, it meant don't go outside. 
And it was the end of the world. <laughs> and it was the end of the world. It was the end of the world. You got made fun of. People were looking for you. Your friends come <laughs> by your house. That was demoralizing. When your friends come by your house and your parents, you can hear your parents say, nah, he can't come out. Oh, God. Oh, that was it, man. That was it. And it was like... You know, from from my window, I could look down the blocks where we had a basketball court, and I could look and see all of them playing outside. And I'm like, damn, man, damn. Ah, man, I know that feeling way too well. And my my grandmother was loud, so she wasn't like she was trying to hide the fact that she was telling my friends. No, it was like he can't come outside here on punishment. Don't yeah. come back tomorrow neither. <laughs> I'm like, damn, you're not you you're already canceling tomorrow, Graham. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't get can't get out early for good behavior. Right, Just right. No, no chance. She did not believe in that good behavior stuff. But going back to the point, man, yeah, going out like if you couldn't go outside, you know you was gonna hear about how great it wouldn't even be that your friends had a great time, but they were like, yo, let's just tell someone so that we had a great time outside yesterday, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we gonna make you feel it. You should have right. been outside. Right, right. Meanwhile, you got in trouble <laughs> because you was with them. But anyway, that's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the point. The point is... Fortunately, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, however you wanna look at it, I think that the world is shifting from that. It's shifting to virtual. So it's very hard to, to make that a thing, mm. uh, to be out. I mean, it still definitely happens, but I feel like it's a taught thing. So the only way to do it is to teach it. Like right. it has to be done from the people that, ex- that experienced it and saw the benefits of it and enjoy it. Like you, me, parents, are taught. It's like, so it'll always be, you know, going out is fun or hanging out in the neighborhood is, is fun. I think it just depends on the area you're in also. Mm-hmm. Um, because neighborhoods change and you know neighborhoods aren't what they necessarily used to be like DC for example is probably at least 70% transient right now like it's the people that are in DC aren't from DC they have no real connection with that place Specifically, if you think about Amityville, especially where Albany Avenue is and where the um, now there's like a daycare center and an auxiliary police station that used to be like part of the four corners where drug sales were at a zenith. It was at an apex. I mean, it was crazy that one of those high traffic places, violence, was it was the typical strip mall, you know, black hood strip mall at the time. It was like Chinese restaurant, liquor store, right, uh, and all kinds of crazy surrounding it and so I wasn't really allowed to go over there my mom didn't want me to we did find ourselves over there from time to time that was kind of like certain parts of the community and you know and I was living in the so the Copeg North Amityville um, area that was what I, where I was and um, it was kind of it was scary because you know a lot of times people think about you know the 80s and the 90s as kind of a, a different uh, society for black people and what it really was it was the vestiges of the late 1960s so I think we need to you know I always kind of have people when I talk about this stuff kind of just underscore the fact that you know black we didn't win the civil rights movement our leaders got killed or imprisoned 
or exile, you know, that they left the country from Adasada Shakur or Dr. King or Malcolm X or the Black Panther Party. All of our, you know, Fred Hampton, all of our leadership, they were either the, the COINTELPRO either found its way and infiltrated into their organizations and um, killed them or set them up. They went to prison. And so after, just because Dr. You know, Dr. King, one of the last, uh, not the last, but one of our last com uh, heroes from our society, our uh, community, got assassinated, somehow, sometimes the way in which we teach our children in schools, we teach it almost as though black people were liberated after that because of some of the civil rights um, acts that were signed into law. Right. I always tell people that my my older cousin, who was about he's about she'll be 52 this year, she was the old my older cool cousin. You know, she was the fly cousin. You know, she went to Hampton HBCU. She was an AKA. She was that cousin. Right, right, right. The first generation in our family who had full citizenship rights. When you put that in perspective, that I'm I'm right behind her, about 13 years behind her. Who you know who we are in American society. I couldn't articulate that as a child of the 80s in, in, in the Hobeck, Amityville area, but I, I can kind of understand the parallels of the how drugs, you know, after they infiltrated and destroyed our civil rights movement, our, our human rights movement, drugs and guns and violence, you know, destabilize the community after you take a, a scythe through the community by taking our men out with, with mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex. So yeah, I existed in that era, it was the beautiful, it was an ugly, beautiful era, right? You got you got the rise of our art, uh, of, you know, globally. You know, you got Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing. You got Spike Lee and, you know, She's Gotta Have It. And this this young black filmmaker kind of making these avant-garde films. And, and, and you know, you know you, you get a chance to see, see us from a different perspective for the first time. Mm -hmm. You got the rise of hip-hop. You know, you got um, Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson both killing the airwaves. You got uh, Whitney Houston and Stevie Wonder, a throwback from the 1960s, still killing it in the 1980s. So you have this collection of culture what, via music or movies or, you know, just broad black culture killing it. However, everybody in America, white people in America and then white people abroad, they will take our talents and our gifts and they will, they will never respect it. At, at that time, you could see that everybody wanted to dance to what we, you know, the music we were putting out, and they wanted to subscribe to and immerse themselves in our culture, but they didn't give a rat's asshole about our lives. I'm sorry, this I'm cursing. I'm <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. They, they didn't care about our lives. You know, they didn't care about the totality of who we are, who we were as human beings. So it, it, that that's been a broken record. You know, dribble that ball, nigga. Throw that ball, kick that ball, hit that ball, run, run, nigga, run, dance, make me that make me dance. You know, make me happy, let me party. Yeah, but your life really doesn't matter. And I want you to be quiet and salute that flag that was created during the time when we were abjectly oppressing you. I want you to say that pledge that was created at the time where you had to deal with Jim Crow. I want you to say that, you know, sing that anthem and, and be, have cried with it, hold your hand over your heart while, you know, even though it was made by a man that was a slaver, written during slavery, championing slavery in the forgotten third verse. That's the hypocrisy. That's, that's, the, that's what I grew up in. And I started understanding this about 12 years old. That that was that's my short. You know, I remember I'm coming out of foster care, so my my experience was a little nuanced. It was a little different. You know what I'm saying? I was orphaned by the time I was about four to six months old, 
and I was already in foster care at this time and I was brought to the Emmyville Copac area in the ni early 19 early to mid 1980s until we were fi finally adopted and stayed out there so no my family grew up here and you know you kind of just put the pieces together as far as where you're, you know, what you said about how we didn't win the civil rights movement and how all our leaders, like, I, I knew that all of the ones, all of the leaders that I have ever heard about, either, like you said, got exiled, killed, or thrown in jail. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think about it in a sense that all of them actually fell to that same fate. And I can't, I want to know where, yeah, you were teaching in, in Bayshore High School? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. How? How? <laughs> so here, here, how? Here's how, how? that goes. Um, so I teach African American studies. I teach global history. And African American studies is a. Remember, in the late '60s, when Black people, when the Black empowerment movement really popped off, a lot of Black studies courses were demanded by the student population. Black high schools students and black college students were running up on administration saying you're going to teach us about us and you're going to hire us to do it and they were like taking like um college administrators hostage like locking down the administrative building like and they forced black studies as it was called at the time um into these schools and what happens was bayshore had a black studies class years ago in the 1960s late 1960s and but again when you have people teaching it depending upon you know they could come out of that era and come out of the tradition where they're, they're unapologetic and you know they can't at that time you really, they really couldn't be touched you know because of the fervor of the country but then when you have folks who take on that class if they're old if they are if they're like if they're teaching it chronologically and they're not teaching it based upon um, the content that the kids need to know that that's going to lose flavor and it did and people really kind of like never they it wasn't offered anymore when I started working there in 2006, um, it was told to me that we can write curriculum for ta uh, for classes, and if, if the board passes it, then all it, it just, just depends upon the kids to take the course. You know, they have to um, load it. So I rewrote the curriculum, and I teach it in a way where I'm, and I'm very unapologetic. And when I, when I, and let me just give you a little caveat. When I say I'm un unapologetic with it, one of my do nows, when I'm being observed, I don't change anything. I don't change my words, I don't change my demeanor. I don't change anything. I don't hide anything. So I was observed by the principal. I was observed by my, my supervisor for one of my lessons. I mean, I'm sorry, the do now was, um, who in here is a nigga? Raise your hand. And um, everybody was looking around. They were like, oh, right. Like, they got real nervous. I said, yeah. well, I, said I said, don't get nervous. Raise your hand. Who in here is a nigga? Let's go. And then they, everybody, and then, so I said, okay, let me back into this because everybody was really, really uncomfortable. And that's my goal in that class to make them uncomfortable. I said, okay, okay, some of y'all are maybe not hearing me right. How many of you have heard the word nigga? Everybody raise their hand. How many of you have um have heard it in music? Everybody raise their hand. In the hallways, raise their hand. In the, in the, in the um, cafeteria, raise your hand. On your sports team, raise your hand. In the, on the, on the movies, raise your hand. In your household, raise your hand. I said, you all heard it on the radio and you're everywhere. How many of you have said the word? Most people raise their hand. How many of you have had it said to you? Most of them raise their hand. I said, so you mean to tell me you hear it everywhere, you subscribe to it, and when I'm asking you how many of you in here is a nigga, nobody's raising their hand? I said, either you're a nigga or you're a liar. Which mm. one of And at that point, everybody said, God damn. Everybody shook, and it's, it's a trick question, because if you raise your hand, you look crazy. And if you don't raise your hand, you look crazy. So I mm -hmm. boxed them, 
and and that's how I take those. That's how my lessons go. Because basically, it was like, how did the word nigger and I, I spell it both ways on the board on purpose. Nigger with an er slash a. Um, how did the word nigger become a part of America's cultural lexicon, right? Colloquial cultural le- lexicon, and that's really what the, the basis of the unit is. And so I teach that class from a from a standpoint of what our kids are dealing with today. And so we we, we talk about current, and then we go back and grab where it came from. So that's kind of like we wrote that in. And so I teach, I could teach it like that. Why? Because what I'm saying is factual and it's backed up by studies. This is what I know. And this, my, you know, my doctorate is in systemic racism. And, you know, that's the broad, broad, it's, it's very, it's more specific than that, but that's the broad topic, subject matter. So when I'm teaching it, who could come in there and say, you, you, you're not doing this right, or you getting in trouble or, or anything like that? Nobody. So that's why I teach it like that. I teach global history as a regular core class as well. When you guys are, when we're talking about growing up in amnesia in that era of time, why don't you think about in the 1980s when drug hits if you could snatch the fathers out of our home put them in prison for, for mm. little you know little bags of weed and then offer our mother crack think about the destabilization of our community if you go back to my era and the parents of my era you can really really see how many mothers were on drugs at that time or on public assistance at that time yeah you need public assistance because dad is gone you took them out of the community for a petty crime, for, for, for petty drug possession, you know, mass incarceration. And, and we have those Rockefeller drug laws where somebody have a little, you know, small amount of weed and they go to jail for mandatory minimum sentences of 10 to 20 years. And then you have white folks with powdered cocaine and they get a slap on the wrist for probation. That's a that's a thing that, you know, growing up in that, when you look around look, at age 12 years old, I was I was in my driveway. Now, I know my mother who adopted me. She was born in Mississippi in 1946. She dealt with the hell of, of Jim Crow terror down in uh, Mississippi. I, I was in my driveway. Nobody was home. I had my radio playing, and I was singing the words to um, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. And this is when gangster hip-hop started to really take over. And I'm singing, oh, I'm saying, nigga, bitch, ho, I'm all in it. And then I paused, and I'm like, yo, why am I, yo, this sounds crazy how many niggas I just said. How, how many niggas I'm killing as a 12 year old boy how, how many bitches and hoes I just you know women I just did to meet I said I'm not doing this I said I, I look real stupid right now because my mother was born and raised in a terroristic south you know white domestic terrorism ruled supreme during her whole entire childhood to, into adulthood when she came up here in 1966 how dare I disrespect her sacrifice how dare I dis- every, disrespect everybody's sacrifice who came before me? I'll be damned. It was at that point where I really got on point. I stopped standing for the pledge at 12 years old. Um, I got in trouble for it, but I didn't care because I was right. And they couldn't do anything with me after I checked. I checked them and I challenged them and threatened them with my mom. That's, that was my era of time. The, the crossroads between the failed civil rights movement, white racist attitudes. Long Island has a nasty mentality. A nice down. They will smile in your face, but when you go into their neighborhood, they got the nigga go home Alabama look. Yeah. Um, you don't belong here asking questions. Like, my mother pays goddamn taxes. You don't need to ask me any questions. I can walk wherever I want. But mm-hmm. their mentality. So, Long Island's got that nasty, either that nice, nasty, or that nasty, nasty, racist, northern racist mentality. Uh, my wife always calls Long Island the northern south. Because everybody likes to be, think of the South as synonymous with the racism, but but the racism is an American cultural uh, custom. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a normative custom in America. It's norm. It is not Southern. 
It has mm-hmm. no geographic barriers or boundaries. Yeah. That's the context by which I grew up, understanding that we, there's a problem here that we're being fed the most negative, stereotypical, ridiculous images of ourselves while being undereducated about who we are in a racist context that is accepted. I knew that was fundamentally wrong. I just couldn't articulate until I had it until I developed the vocabulary to articulate it as I got older. Wow. Sheesh. That's, that's community, baby. <laughs> yeah. That's powerful. I mean, I you're you are a blessing to those kids who have taken your class because I can't imagine what that would have done to my life to have somebody like you and take a class of course and have somebody like you give that type of knowledge like I can't like you said I, I had an understanding of what we were dealing with in America but I didn't have the ways to articulate it and I I didn't want to stand for the pledge but I didn't have enough of a reason not to I didn't have enough of an understanding not to I, I didn't have enough of an understanding uh, not to agree with some of the curriculum and some of the things that they were saying about what we how we were growing up and how you know the civil rights movement was and how what 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 position that we're in today right. and you know this whole kumbaya and all of that I, I didn't agree with it so much but I didn't have enough in the vocabulary to say or articulate why I felt that way maybe not only to them but also to myself and so you know, I, I think it would have did wonders if, you know, we even, I have a couple of friends who, you know, we read a lot and, and we, we got that vocabulary now after reading books and doing a little bit of research and study on, you know, our history. But mm-hmm. we talk about it now and how we, we wish we had somebody in our lives that, you know, push that, you know, a lot of our, a lot of the times, you know, growing up, a lot of our parents of life was like, you know, just stay out of trouble, period. You know, they were more protective in the sense that we don't want you getting into trouble. You know, we don't want you barking against the system too much because that puts you in a space where a lot of times they feel like they're hopeless and they can't protect you. So they, 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 they kind of told you, you know, take your time, you know, I understand things ain't right, I agree with what you're saying, but in their eyes, there was a way to go about things, and the way to go about things wasn't bucking against the system right there in their faces like that, so you know, we played the role, and went along, and graduated, and did it that way, but you know, yeah, I, I, I honestly mean that you are a true blessing to those people that you are teaching I, I thank you, I've never had your class, but I thank you for what you do I, did, I didn't have his class either and I learned so much just walking past his class every single day. Every person I know, and even my little sister took his class and she still refers to, oh, I learned that Mr. Johnson's class six years ago. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> how, do remember, how do you remember that? She actually gave me some of the packets and I still have the packets in my drawer. So I actually sent them to you, Jimmy, from his class. It's, it's weird. And, and, and cause I hear, I'm hearing the things and I, I'm a listener. So what, what you said, when you said I didn't have the vocabulary to really articulate that, you know what's insane about the, that statement, which I'm not coming for you, but it's also emblematic of the larger collective of who we are as a people, and how disempowered we are by not only our ignorance, and I say that in the most respectful and, and logical and, mm-hmm, I understand. and um, yeah. you know, not, not pejoratively, we, don't, we have a lack of knowledge. We, you don't need a vocabulary to articulate that. This country that prides itself or lies, you know, because the hypocrisy is so powerfully deep, it runs so deep, 
but the, the, this country that prides itself on on enlightenment ideology of the, the right to you know to your own ideas and the freedom of speech and freedom to protest and to express oneself right if you say that that's the first amendment right however when, when black people do things that are that's in that's that really really contrast with, with white feelings then they'll completely ignore the first amendment if you if you if you notice that they they really they they promote the second amendment to me more than the first amendment you always hear white folks talking about second amendment this second amendment that so what's frustrating is that you shouldn't have to have the vocabulary to explain that position i just don't want a goddamn stand leave me yeah. alone yeah. You know, and to be honest with you, I told my students who still get harassed um, because the, the, the principal was telling um, teachers before, you cannot do that. It is against the law. First of all, it's against their constitutional First Amendment rights. But second of all, 1943, I believe 43 or 46 Supreme Court case law says prescribed patriotism is illegal. You cannot force someone to be a patriot in the way that you see fit. Mm. So, so what's frustrating is that we don't know this on general principle. As black people, we are way off code, off code. Because if we were, because because we should, our kid, my kid, I let them know. At ten and six years old, you can stand and you can not stand. However, you feel comfortable, but no one can make you stand. I'll come up there and I'll burn that place to the ground, and they know it. And that's how they. That's they because I've empowered them. Our parents disempower us by telling us to stay out of trouble. And other words, mm-hmm. in the Hey, stay in the good graces of whiteness. Yep. Good graces of white people, so you don't you don't rock the boat. And then my thing is like, wait a minute, do I have to make sure that this terrorist feelings are okay? I have to make sure that I rub the back and the feet of this terrorist. If you're gonna come for me in that way, then I'm you're anti your own con- your constitution that you say you love so much. I'm not gonna disempower my kids. I want them to stay out of trouble, but I also want them to challenge where they see things are wrong. And I'll come up there and I'll fight that fight when I come. Appreciate that. Looking from afar, I, I salute you, brother. Like that's extremely powerful. And every time you open your mouth, you keep saying something where I'm like, God damn, like you're <laughs> right. No, that's that's really that's something. That's something. We, you know, I didn't think. Been- I, I did not think about it in that, in that way. In the sense that, you know, you do have freedom and liberty or whatever they call it to pursue your happiness in a sense that you don't have to articulate everything that you say or do in a, in a specific way that you that to make somebody else understand it as long as you're not doing anything violent or something that's specifically against the law so mm-hmm. we we have been raised to support white privilege white fragility and white feelings we have been raised to tiptoe, mm-hmm. make sure that we don't offend whiteness so that they don't get mad, get angry. Because when white people get angry, people die mm-hmm. in, in American culture and America's history. So when white people are, are angry or they disagree, not not that things are wrong, mm-hmm. but things are right. It's not based yeah. upon righteousness, it's based upon their, their, the, the, the concepts of if I say it, so shall it be. If I, if I want it or I will it, so shall it be, regardless of the righteousness of about it. And we've been raised in this context because we've been so terrorized. We, we're constantly, if you notice, all of us are constantly aware of whiteness every day. Why? Because we navigate it every day. Why? Because it means our lives. It's like literally life and death, whether it be economic life, you know, you don't want to lose a job because you don't want to be too unapologetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, don't, you know, you don't, you know, it could be your life because you're, you're dealing with a psychopath or white domestic terrorist. You know, it could be your actual life. 
it's your education lineup you can get a you can fail or have a teacher target you because they don't they, they have an attitude based upon what you have said or what you have done so we we're constantly conditioned in this country to be more concerned about white feelings than we are righteousness mm-hmm. I, I agree I don't I don't want to get too off topic. I could talk to you for oh man for days. But, uh, I I would. Uh, my so family, you I want me to go back to the? Con- the what are you saying? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was saying you want me to go back to the community, the Amityville piece, right? Yeah, I was gonna ask you because my um because it's not just an Amityville thing. I think it's a it's a worldwide thing as far as us being connected because I think when we talk about community I think we're just, we're not necessarily talking about just Amityville or just Bay or or just Long Island period I think we're talking about well when I say it I'm talking about my people black people in general just building a community amongst us all around the world where we know that you know it's love when you come when you see when you see each other and it's not you know it's not hatred it's not what they try to feed us it's not that everybody dark is trying to do something to you it's none of that it's love when we're trying to see each other so i think when we talk about that we're talking about that so I, I know when to speak and I know when to shut up and <laughs> You feel me? You feel me like, yo, oh man, yo, Alex, you, oh my God, what the hell? Man, how, I'm, all right, he's back. The king is back. All right. <laughs> uh, I know what you, the question you were asking too. Okay. Uh, and, and, and I want to give y'all a little back, um, little, little uh, context to my uh, growth growing up there remember so the 80s and 90s the way in which they appeared very weird right so the 80s you have there was so much um going on at the time in terms of unemployment and the economy was bad ronald reagan was kind of you know kind of bringing back supposedly bringing back american greatness but he was exploding the deficit and and doing all that other you know trickery that they do um, and it was rough, you know, if you were black, you were just hustling. If you know anything about old black people, they always hustling for the greater good of trying to make it. So my mom worked at the phone company and she did her little, you know, overtime. My grandmother lived with us. So my Nana really kind of helped to raise us. Um, you know, that's how I learned how to cook by, um, by my grandmother and my mom. So Amityville, at growing up in the 80s, it was, it was, you know, in Copac area, it was weird. Very, you could, you know, you can, sometimes you can go out and see in certain areas, you see crack, you know, crack kind of paraphernalia. Um, I remember going through, there was like this wooded area before they started developing more houses, photography, magazines, and all kinds of stuff rolling around this area. It was just weirdness, like kind of just, you know, reckless, just kind of like old Wild West, you know, like fighting at the bus stop, fighting at the basketball court. People, you know, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, crime at that time in the 90s. You know, early to mid '90s. You know, after uh, President Bill Clinton took took the reins of power in, in in the presidency, the economy started to turn a little bit. It was the dot com era, where people were creating getting, creating money and big businesses through the internet. It was a new thing. You know, 1994, 95, 96, like this internet growth was booming and people were making more money. And so people started to, you know, you could see it on the block. People started taking their um their bars off the window. People started to, you know, beautify their homes a little bit more. The neighborhoods got better. 
that started wiping, um, you know, cleaning up the streets. We had a lot of prostitution on the streets. We walk into school, we would see prostitutes. We actually knew some of their names. Mm. Like it was, it was, it was wild, you know, at, at a certain point. You know, like it, it was weird that we knew some of the prostitutes' names. Like yeah. we had you know, our barber shop, but like, um, it was like going to therapy. You know, like the, you know, when people, you know, when when Ice Cube did barbershop and kind of connected white America and Hollywood to to what what has been ours, right? You, mm -hmm. The barber and that, that community was more like a place where young men went to learn how to be young men. Some of the stuff that was said, there was reckless, and <laughs> some of the barbers <laughs> were were reckless or <laughs> selling drugs or running guns. I knew, knew a couple of them, but mm -hmm. um, a lot of times they gave you, you know, a lot of good advice and looked after you. So that was kind of me growing up too. I also started to recognize in my school that I had no African American teachers at all, and I under, I recognized that there was no um, no black representation at all. And it was like, what is this? So it's like the destruction of our families by, by way of the dads not being in the um, picture, mom either getting you know either working so hard to raise us or hooked on drugs, and then go to school and be disempowered with the curriculum and the teachers. It kind of was a recipe for us to be, you know, that created, you know, uh, the 90s gangster hip hop era. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were raising, a lot of times, people black people always were raising themselves. You know, so that was the context. So, I, and by the way, I just I just went to Fruit Tree two days ago. So I'm still around. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was just at Fruit Tree the other day. Um, so it's so weird over there how, how different it looks. You know, there was a, a store called Cheap John's that was next to Fruit Tree years ago i don't even know if y'all are old enough to know cheap johns where that pet spot is now it's a pet store that closed down okay yes it says pet warehouse yeah yeah that that used to be a place called cheap johns and it was like a place where you got everything school supplies candy three three candies for a dollar so it'd be like you know the regular size candy bars snickers or or whatever candy you, you know starburst whatever it was like three for a dollar that was back in the day um and that was that was, you know, that was that's the era that I grew up in. And I'm, so I'm still connected over there. I used to do, I used to go to Copeg and work with the basketball team and stuff like that for a little bit. I used to, um, you know, be around and, you know, with, with some of the youth leagues and stuff like that. I do so much now. I just, I don't have, I don't, I'm not, I'm rarely over there unless I'm going to like Fruit Tree or Big Lots or something like that. Oh, you you loyal to the Fruit Tree. Loyal Fruit Tree, I'm telling you. <laughs> fruit Tree. <laughs> Fruit Tree, if you remember, Fruit Tree, it offered a lot of the, the food opportunities mm -hmm. that, like, immigrants were really kind of, like, West Indian, Latino, or, or Polish, mm -hmm. or house with, you know, the herbs, and so, like, you know, turmeric, you know, fresh turmeric root. Um, mm. I got some burdock root, made some, um, Ooh, you know, burdock root um, I, I make that from scratch. I got burdock root that I made, like, the, just the root form. I cleaned it, and then I, um, then I grated it, then I dried it, and then I um, roasted it for my own burdock tea. So that's that's a blood cleanser. That's a powerful antioxidant. So we, I yeah, go yeah, I got something in my fridge right now. Yep, I go to fruit tree for that. So you know that's why I'm like I'm going right there, get all our stuff. Cause some people be missing out on these gems. I got some um, dandelion from them yesterday, uh, the other day. Oh, you know? so you know? Oh, oh my <laughs> God. Yeah, yeah, this guy is touching it on every side. Okay, okay. Yep. So we got we 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 stocked up over here. You know, oh, we, they got the organic ginger root. We got that. You know, if you, I, I'm half Jamaican, so I didn't, I didn't grow up with that side of my family. Um, but I, when I met them in the '90s, that's when I created my connection to my grandmother and um, and that my, that side of the family. So, ginger root tea. That's what we are. Um, 
we're always, you know, making over here. Every morning we got the ginger root boiling with this, with some tea. I mean, with some lemon. I'm sorry, ginger root lemon tea. Do or I'll put the little um, uh, the burdock in there. We're right now we're waiting for our supplement to come in. The burdock root, bladder rack, and um, oh, sea moss. That's right, sea moss. Oh, okay. Ooh, there yeah. it is. So we got all three of them. Um, and I'm waiting for my order of um, the, the fresh sea moss that I just ordered from this woman on um Etsy. So so I can make my sea moss gel. So we're 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 uh, getting back to your question. I try to stay connected as possible, but black people have it particularly difficult in our communities because we're more like neighborhoods than communities. We don't have connectivity mm -hmm. that we yep. once had. Yep. You know, back in the day, we were all in this together. And what, what white American capitalism has poisoned our minds with is that it's about you, the individual. And that's why we can't live together and build. If you notice Latino households, they can have like 35 people in the household and everybody's working together for the greater good of the collective. Mm -hmm. You know, black people are always like, I ain't having nobody in my house. You know what I mean? <laughs> we have that mentality. You know, I pay the bills around here. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's really what it is. Like we, we can't stand each other, um, mm -hmm. unfortunately. We do love, now look, I don't want to speak in such a broad way to where it's like, we don't like each other, we mean mugs. I'm saying that at its heart, we can't, it's hard for us to get together yep. to do what's necessary to grow collectively and then to be a powerful voting block or powerful block of people to make change. We have bought into individualism. We like to, we like to beat people. Like, so if you got a new car and it's nice, I can't even give you that without me trying to say, okay, I got to get my new, I got to yep. get myself together. Like yep. I'm already competing with you before I say congratulations. I'm already yep. competing. Yeah. You know, so we why but here's the thing this i know i'm talking a lot but i like to get all this i like to get all this out whenever i have the opportunity yeah we need all we this. buy we buy labels and we we subscribe to these these white uh symbols of wealth because we lack self-esteem and we're mm -hmm. constantly trying to demonstrate our humanity through the things we can buy see white person i bought this i'm just like you treat me like mm -hmm. like you and instead of us having this internal self-worth and this internal efficacy about who we are and what we what we can do, we have to demonstrate who we are or, or by the things that we can buy. And so that keeps us individualistic instead of more collective. What if you could boil down three things that maybe we can start to do on a regular basis that would start to bring some community sense back? Well, first, we, we kind of need a code. We don't Ooh. have a code. Woo! Say that one more time. One more time. We need a code, and we don't have one. We need a code. Think about it. You go to Chinatown. You see anybody else there employed, or running, or running anything? Nope. No. Nope. nope. You go to you go to Little Italy. Do you see anybody else running the the show there? No. No. So, but but when you go to our communities, everybody else is running the show. Chinese restaurant, liquor store owned by somebody else. Um, dominoes, you know, so you got corporate, you got corporate interests controlling our communities. You got people who don't live there controlling our communities. You have us not being able to invest in our own communities with our own businesses. We have um, the beauty supply spot owned by the um, Asian person that's, that's no, that doesn't live or contribute to our communities. So first, we have to understand a code and what community is. So I, you know, code is super important. And, and when I say code, something that's baked into our consciousness that we do not have to think twice about. For mm -hmm. instance, 
where something's going down and a black woman or a black man is being a targeted or hit or, or attacked by another group or another person in public, it should be general principle that we're getting involved. Mm-hmm. General principle for you not to watch a black woman get get abused by some other group of people's men or whatever because they mm-hmm. like to target our women and our children. They don't necessarily yes. come for us because they're cowards. So yep. it should be general principle without us thinking. Step right in and choke the shit out of somebody and let them know, mm-hmm. no, you got to go to sleep tonight. Now you got to go yep. to sleep right now <laughs> because you, you messed up. You thought you had free reign to mess with this woman but you yeah. didn't know she had brothers that she didn't even know their name so now you're going to sleep yeah we don't have that code we don't have that unspoken i got your back anymore that's one thing that we need establish i'm writing a book right now where it's really kind of talking about this kind of code um you know to where you don't need me see what happens is a lot of our leadership as well are um are narcissistic um, and I don't like to talk talk bad about people, but let me give you an example. And y'all can take this how you want to. The other Dr. Johnson, Dr. Umar Johnson. Oh, yeah. Oh, is, is brilliant, well. As brilliant as he is, because I'm not going to ever deny his intelligence. He is a brilliant man. He is, and he's a psychologist. He's one of the most narcissistic people ever and as a as a psychologist he should know how narcissistic he is or maybe not because the sickness doesn't allow for you to know that you're that sick yeah he's a narcissist and a, a lot of our leadership leadership is that they want you to pat them on the back they want adulation they are i call them the the the, the merchants of our misery they 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 you know they get paid they, they get paid off of our pain you know so there, if these merchants of our misery, these, these these profiteers of our pain, these these folks like to make money off of talking shit about our issues, and 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 offering some very basic solutions without specifics, and then and but but want the adulation, you you want the the respect of leadership without having to have ever done anything to lead. Leaders lead, leaders don't give themselves nicknames. The leaders don't say I'm the prince of pan-Africanism. Leaders do the work, and the people that are appreciative of that work and the sacrifice, they name you. They give you those nicknames. Dr. King wasn't calling himself the king of the civil rights movement. Malcolm X wasn't saying I'm the I'm the this of nothing. They were they were doing the work, and a lot of our fake leaders don't work. They don't doing it they just try to sell you something sell you a product sell you a program sell you a speech so we we, we have disempowered our kids for too long we allow them to get brainwashed in our schools for too long mm-hmm. I'm a person, I, I do my kids homework with them and every night um you know when we were not in quarantine now we do the, everything with them every day i'm sitting there with them and we're we're going over it and when they have history and stuff I'm, I'm I'm questioning everything and I'm making them question everything mm-hmm. and then and they have to then correct I make them correct their homework sometimes correct the sheet that they would give we have to really really be learners that's a big thing we have to have code but we have to have engaged intellectualism we have to learn right uh, about who we are and, and that's going to create some self-worth and dignity among us so we got code we got deepened uh, education but I also think and by the way there's a lot more and I'm giving you this, these things that we need to kind of work on internally or whatever, but there's so much more. And the mm-hmm. other thing, I would say physical, psychological, and financial fitness. 
that that's all under one umbrella. So yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I so got you. I would say that because first of all, you can't raise a fat ass revolutionary that's gonna have a heart attack, right? <laughs> you can't. You, you can't raise. You we cannot be talking about what we need and what we want to do, but we dying early because we're not taking care of ourselves. 100%. You know, um, in, in, in a real holistic way. Um, so that's that's the physical, the psychological. Black people have PS, PTSD just by way of living in racist white America. Mm-hmm. And we, we turn on the TV and watch us get killed by cops and then white people justify it. That's, yep. that's, that's PTSD. I mean, like, everything that we have to go through with, with them attacking black people for not wanting to stand for a racist anthem. Think about how privileged and how narcissistic and how psychotic you have to be to take a racist poem and make it the national anthem and expect people of color to abide by it and, and happily put their hand over their heart for it. That's 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 part of the PTSD that's inflicted upon us, that we have to embrace that. Yeah. Watching, watching our family members get lynched historically and then embrace that nonsense. So that's a mental um, fitness. We need to really figure out how we are going to start to throw up some shields for our children against the crazy of whiteness. How do, how do we protect them from it? And how we stand on our own too and demand that people do exactly what the hell we need them to do. If we can't afford to take our kids out and homeschool them, then damn it, we need to make somebody do what they need to do. They need to and we need to be on point. So that's the that's the um psychological piece. And also all black all black people need therapy. That's just my bottom line. I just think we all need um somebody to talk to, preferably a black um mental health professional. Yeah. Um, and, and when I say black mental health professional, a black person with a black mind, not a black face with a white mind. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Because all all skin folk ain't kin folk. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we we can't we can't go to see you know doctor whoever who's saying hey how are you my name is Doctor Jones and um I'd like to know what's on your mind this afternoon no, we can't have that because yeah. Doctor Jones don't know what the hell's going on in your brain. Mm-hmm. Doctor Jones he thinks he's one of the good ones. And he likes yep. to get his head. He gets to get a pat on the head by white people. So we can't do that. We got to go to somebody who has that who has that deepened empathy and compassion and love and connectivity towards us. And that, that third piece there is, is the financial fitness. We gotta stop, stop overreaching. Stop overreaching to buy Gucci belts. Uh, Bill Gates doesn't have a Gucci belt. But again, our, our self-esteem issues really, it requires us to get this mental health so that then we can fix our financial health. Because mm-hmm. we out there overspending. People always talk about, oh, black people got $1.3 trillion of spending power. No, we don't. No, we don't. No, we don't. Yeah. No, we don't. We we do have we do have spending power on more than other poor people in the world because their version of poor is very different from ours. But yep. we do not have disposable income. That's a difference. Just because we we make a certain amount of money doesn't mean we have disposable income. Chances are we have higher higher interest rates, you know, than everybody else. It's harder for us to get a good loan with good terms. And we were, the chances are, and the statistics show that we make less than everybody else, especially if you're a black woman. And it's harder for us to get a job than to, you know, than other people. We're the first fired, the last hired and the first fired. So that financial fitness, we got to really understand what it is we're either going to school for, what we're getting trained for, and have a have a real plan to be to get gainful employment or be entrepreneurial or be both. We have to teach our kids entrepreneurship at an early age. And credit at an early age, and savings and investing at an early age. We need a coach because if we're 
on code, we start with when it's time for us to do the actionable work to go in the right direction. We're on. We have the mental capacity to do so. Thank you for coming out, All right, man. Alex, you you short shot this. You told me that we was ready to hear some stuff, but you did not, nah, man. Listen, I try to I try to tell you the best way I knew how. You said it was worth the wait. It. <laughs> I, man, I would have. You could have rescheduled for tomorrow, and I would have. <laughs> try, try. Oh man, that's that's for the community. That's as for the community as you can get. It.